Good morning, LCM. Good morning. Today is Sunday, May 1st. Look, as cheesy as it sounds, and I'm going to struggle to say it, our April showers are uh, about to bring a for forth May flowers. Life is about to happen in here. And it's going to be glorious. Saints, there is a great deal that we are excited to share with you this morning. We're excited because the Spirit of God has shown His approval on this congregation. He's done it over the last several messages in very special ways. We are experiencing unprecedented spiritual growth in this house. Can anybody say amen to that? Amen. Unprecedented spiritual growth in our development as mature believers. In the last few weeks... We've been confronted, we've been challenged by the things that Christians readily agree with everywhere in every church, but they are MIA from their daily practices. We're not going to be MIA, are we? No. Moving forward through those other messages, we have renewed a very present understanding of the resurrection of the believer as a cyclical process. So what happens is we have trying in crucifying events in our daily lives so that we make it our goal not to somehow, like how could it be, but somehow I will attain the resurrection of the dead. That is the lifestyle the scripture teaches. <laughs> Saints, together we have taken a deeper look at the things that make Jesus weep. We saw that Jesus did not weep because Lazarus had died. No, not at all. After all, Jesus deliberately waited for Lazarus to die. And Jesus knew the whole time that he would raise him again. Now, my favorite part. We saw that while Martha and Mary both believed in the resurrection on the last day, neither in that moment showed faith that resurrection life was presently available to them in their circumstances for that day. Oh, but did Jesus leave them there? No. no, in a sense, together we learned that Martha and Mary were both raised right alongside their previously dead brother. Raised out of their disbelief to belief. Saints, as a body, we're beginning to answer that great question. Do you believe? Do you believe, church? Do you believe? This last Thursday evening, we explored donkeys. Death and royal studs. Because we know that our Father is teaching us, leading us to form generational teams. We know that the glory is to rest on the next generation, not on the older generation. We're preparing as a community to do far more than die for Jesus in a one-time blaze of glory at the end of our lives. Rather, it's our goal as a lifestyle to face every crucifying moment all along the way so that we get to experience the resurrection power many times in our life. Come on. This is going to ensure that you guys are royal studs. Yeah. And that you raise a stable of royal studs that will carry the message of God with all of his blessed speed to every nation on earth. Saints, as we're reflecting on the things that God has been speaking to us, we want to go ahead and jump straight into the scripture with you because this is going to be a busy morning. It's going to be a packed morning and it's one that will produce advancement in every area. It's kind of fun 
that Justin Treaster didn't know and we didn't know. Mm -hmm. And the scripture he picked for Kaddish is what our whole message is based on. So in the chapter that Justin Treaster walked us through in the Kaddish, we are picking up together in the middle of Paul's excellent description of the victorious gospel of the kingdom. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 26, we're going to begin. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Saints, the very last enemy to be destroyed is death. You heard that earlier. It was with us at the entrance of sin into the creation. It's the first enemy to arise, and it is the last one to go. There's this time under tension. It's with us until we reach the renewal of all things when death is totally removed. Now, but we in this house, which you have heard already, have the example of Messiah that has already gained victorious power over this enemy. Our own baptisms were immersion into the reality of death as something that exists all around us so that we might rise out of it and into new life. Come on. Unfortunately, people's experience with this truth is usually a one-time act <laughs> instead of a baptism into a lifestyle that recognizes death is all around, but we can always rise out of it. That's what the resurrection life is. Let's continue in verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you. Oh, come on. Which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. The Apostle Paul did not die once with Christ in his past. He was not waiting to die once with Christ in his future. No. His statement is that I die every day. Which means if he went on more than one day, he's experiencing something else. Every day, resurrection power. Look, all too often, we consider ourselves believers because we died with Christ to sin. Anybody in the room die with Christ to sin? In yeah. our Past, we died with Christ to sin. And we believe, we hope that we will rise with him in the future. Every bit of this is good, holy, and edifying. But the more complete picture yeah. is that from the moment you died with Christ, you are committing to do it again and again, facing danger every hour that you might be raised with Christ again and again by his power. We're proud of you guys. Yeah. In this body, because we see a revelation at work. It's working its way into the very fabric of your daily lives. And it's showing up in your walk with Jesus. Every time you face crucifying moments, 
the power of the resurrection is right there with you to raise you up for another cycle, another battle. We're not going to sit around and burn incense to a past event. We're not going to bite our nails and just look forward to a future event. We can live in a resurrection power right now. Now, saints, you're biblically literate. You know that someone can cherry pick a singular scripture and take it out of context. Paul here is not speaking of an isolated subject. In fact, he writes about it again and again. In fact, it is common for him to speak of death as an ongoing and continual power that he is dealing with. So that resurrection might be displayed continually through him to the world around. Now we have a slide for you that is just a small sampling. Romans 8, 36. As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. All day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Saints, he's exclaiming about how they are facing death all day, and yet they're conquerors. Do you see the chasm? There is death and then resurrection that is lifting him again and again. So 1 Corinthians 4, 9 through 10. For it seems to me. I love when an apostle says that. Like, it seems to me. Maybe. Yeah, it, it, it's occurred to me. It's in the scripture. That, that God has put us apostles on display. At the end of the procession. Like men condemned to die in the arena. Understand his analogy. They're not dead yet. They're just walking around as dead men. The whole world knows that they're surrounded by death. And they're being displayed in that regard. We have been made a public, we've been made a spectacle to the whole universe and to angels as well as men. Does it sound like the Apostle Paul was wrestling with death on a daily basis? This next one, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three, 23, is beautiful. Paul here, speaking about circumstances that are surrounding the church. Are they servants of Christ? It's a question. He's asking, what kind of servants are they? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. See, Paul's charge here is not that someone else didn't suffer for Christ. It's not that they weren't crucified with Christ to their sin. He's saying, I am more because death is being exposed to me again and again. I am becoming like Christ. It's crazy how we look at these dying moments and we get discouraged by them. It's crazy that we spend all of our time in theological battles. Did, did I cause this? Is this my sin? Is, or am I suffering for righteousness sake? Well, how about you be righteous and then it won't matter, period. Whether you're suffering because of something you did or somebody else did makes no difference. When we suffer appropriately, something happens. 2 Corinthians 4.11 For we who are alive. I love how he says that day every day, but we who are alive. We're a walking dichotomy, huh? For we who are alive are always being given over to death. How often? Always. Does that sound like a one-time event when you were eight years old back in youth camp? We always being given over to death. For Jesus' sake. Why though? 
so that his life might be revealed in our mortal body. Look, we, we understand something. We under, watch this. We understand that you understand this conceptually. Your orthodoxy is strong. This is the most biblically literate church that I have ever seen. The aim of all of the messages that have been coming forward in the last few weeks is not just at orthodoxy, though. It's at orthopraxy. Yeah. We, it's not enough for us to know these things. We have to live in their expectation as a reality in our lives, which means we stop mourning and being shocked when we encounter these kind of things. We stop falling on the ground like, ah, why? You know why? So that the life of God might be displayed. Wherever crucifying moments exist, you know what you can know for sure? The resurrection follows the crucifixion. Do you want to know the power of the resurrection? Do you want to know? Saints, the only way to get baptized in that resurrection power is to be immersed in crucifying moments, baptized in dying moments. This means that those moments are not bad for us that no longer are we looking at them with scorn. We're embracing them because they are not punishments for us. They are the means by which, the vehicle, the power by which we live in and demonstrate Christ's resurrection power for the world to see. So we sometimes, I mean like occasionally, get impressed with our own homiletics. Once or twice. Get really wrapped up in what we've studied. I know you home group leaders have never done this. And we're too clever by half. Because we share something that we think is like uh, an enigma wrapped in a riddle. And it's an intricate puzzle. And they'll see the complexity and marvel at the greatness of our God. I want to be very, very straightforward. Because very often I've preached messages here and then somebody comes afterwards and they're like, cool, we need to go buy donkeys. You're like, mm, no, no, mm, no, that's, that's not, that's not really that. Did, oh, see, did it sound like that's what I was saying? But it happens. It happens every week. And uh, we take full responsibility for that. Sometimes we just don't plainly say what we should say. So we want to state it plainly right now. Far too many Christians see the crucifixion as a past event. And they see the resurrection as a future event. And those things are true. But it's far less than half the story in a Christian's life. We are in an ongoing cycle of crucifying moments that continually reveal Christ's resurrection power in us. So if you needed to write down a a thesis, that way you're not going to come to me afterwards and say, he wants us to go to Whole Foods? Yeah, no, if I mention Whole Foods or anything else in this message, what I just said is the point, okay? All we're going to do is expand on that now. (laughs) Look, we're going to go to Luke 9, 23. This is the words of Christ on this specific subject matter. Then he said to them all, like everybody in the room, all clearly, painly, delineated for all to hear and understand. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily 
Somebody say daily again. Daily. And follow me. Saints, what on earth would you need a cross daily for? I mean, it's, it's an execution tool. This is not about memorializing a past event or just longing for a future event and holding on to a religious totem as a reminder. This is about a lifestyle of crucifying moments, daily moments that are followed by daily resurrecting moments. Yes. Saints, this is the gospel. This is what he called his disciples to, those who would come after Christ. But saints, we want to tell you this morning, this is more than just being saved or being delivered from a bad situation. This is how we are matured into Christ who is the head of the body. This is how we become like our Savior. And saints, this is how we display Christ to the rest of the world around us. When did you get saved? <laughs> uh, which, which time? Oh, you were referring to the first time that I really understood that I was being delivered? Oh, that I can say. But when did I get saved? Well, I, I began that process. I'm in the middle of that process, and I'm not nearly done with that. I'm quite certain he'll have to save me tomorrow. Maybe later today. Now, if you don't like that, and I don't think that's a problem here, so let me just, if you online don't like that, I can't tell you how much I don't care. Your theology... If it can't be worked out practically in your life, it's practically worthless. And the idea that you're just credited with it all and it was all done in a one-time act is wrong. Jesus completed all he needed to do at the cross. We are still very much in a faith walk of obedience for all that needs to be completed. And by the way, carry your cross. That's not that little gold thing that you're wearing around, around your neck. Like, I'm fulfilling the command. Look, I carry the cross. Yeah. No, it's a crucifixion tool daily because that's the life that you expect as a believer. Look, can I tell you our message today? We're 18 minutes in. It's time to announce, uh, announce the, the title. Yeah. Where's Rob? Where you at, Rob? Oh, yeah. He's the good-looking single guy in the middle. It's International Harvester. <laughs> yeah, like a lot, a lot of pay. Of no. A lot, of a lot of hay for very little pay. An International Harvester. So today, fewer than 2% of Americans live on farms. Is that a shocker to anybody in the room? In fact, we have men in this church that grew up on a farm and not one of their brothers still lives on the farm. They all moved to the cities. As the U.S. population continues to shift away from rural areas into cities and suburbs and begins to vote Democrat, we are ever more removed from the agricultural practices that sustain us. Look, this slide about disconnected populations from farms comes from the American Farm Bureau Foundation for Agriculture, and it's as recent as 2021. 2% sounds high to me. I, I think they might be including weed farms. <laughs> what you need to understand is that this is a radical departure from the world that our great-grandparents grew up in. Even the tiny fraction of people in this room that are presently growing edible plants, not smokable plants, we'll talk to you after the service. Those of you who are growing edible plants in your backyards, you, you need to consider how far removed you are from the agricultural process as 
a life-sustaining necessity for you. Like, look at your garden and imagine that there was no Walmart, and you'll start to get what I'm talking about. This makes it difficult for us to conceive of the practical aspects of farming for food on a daily basis for survival in the biblical world. No, it's true. When you consider Jesus, he came from a family of carpenters. Yeah. Paul, from a family of tent makers. James and John, from a family of fishermen. But every one of these men were participants in a society that depended entirely upon farming for its survival at large. Look, when you wrestle with that for a minute, we want to help close a cultural gap this morning. We're picking up in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 36, and it's going to help explain our understanding. You guys ready? Yes. How foolish! Saints, I resemble this remark when I'm reading the Bible and I'm realizing I don't have the culture of the Bible. At best, I've helped my wife plant a few flowers in the garden. I have no idea what it looks like to raise acres or my children don't eat. What it goes on to say is, when you sow, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Look, we hear this and we think about maybe making a deposit into Chase Bank. Yeah. Sow is directly an agricultural term. It is talking about taking something and you are burying it into death. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be. Praise God for the translators just switching up the English words to help make sure we get it. They're just helping you out. But just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Look, when these words were written, it's unlikely that there would be a single recipient who had not personally grown crops in their lifetime for the purpose of survival. That's, that's a little different. While Paul is talking about the resurrection of the dead that will occur at the return of Jesus, notice how he relates the entire process to something that every single one of the recipients participated in perpetually throughout their daily lives just to survive. Look, in other words, you think Paul is only talking about taking the uh, proverbial dirt nap, if you will. At the end of your life, when you're sown into death, look, this underlies a huge misconception that we have. He's not just speaking about the proverbial dirt nap and then resurrection as a one-time event where you're raised to life. There's so much more. He's actually describing the final end of a process that is ongoing and repeating through your whole life up to that point. This is true every time you experience a dying moment. And it is followed by the resurrecting power of the word of God. Each person had the experience of taking seed from a living plant and covering it with dead soil. Each person had the experience of waiting and watching to see if it would grow. Somebody say if. Yeah. See, it wasn't a certainty. They had to wait and watch to see if it would grow. And then praise God, praise God, it's growing. But will it mature? It's getting bigger. Praise God, it's growing. 
but will it produce fruit of its own? Come on. Every person that was reading this text had that experience personally, perpetually throughout their life. All of them knew what it was to be dependent on the rain that they could not control for the harvest that they so badly needed. Every person had to trust God for the rain that was needed. Come on. Look, as you're looking at me and I, you're like, yes, yes, I get it. The Bible is an agricultural society. Thank you. They didn't do this one time as a science project back in kindergarten. Like, you know, your kindergarten teacher put for you a bean in a cup and then you put it in a window seal and it sprouted. <laughs> yeah, no, this was their normal cycle of life and their lives and the lives of their families were completely dependent upon it. That will change the way that you look at things. Look, when you understand that dependency, when you understand that the Bible in its society was an agricultural society, the absolute dependency upon God that it required just to live, it will change the way that you read your Bible. I promise these things will transform the words of Jesus. Look, as a small sampling, we want to begin in Matthew 13, verse 3 together. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. Saints, when Jesus taught on the parable of the soils, he was not talking to a people that gardened as a hobby, as something fun to do. He was talking to a people that farmed as if their lives depended on it. Frankly speaking, because their lives did depend upon it. This means that when he's talking about cultivating the four kinds of soil that are found in your heart, Everybody there understood that all four kinds of soil were in every field that they had ever seen, every field that they owned. They knew that even when you worked very hard to plow the ground, the very same ground would have to be plowed again in another season. They knew that. <laughs> Nobody there would have the idea. You know, if I believe and accept what Jesus is, is saying here, if I truly trust in what he's saying here, then the process is done. <laughs> Nor would they think that if I just long for the harvest enough, if I look forward to it at the end of a, yeah. at the age enough, well, then that kind of thought is my protection. <laughs> These people grow crops for survival. Every harvest was followed by more plowing, Come on. more planting, more trusting Adonai for the harvest that was needed to sustain life. It's the difference between the way a theologian looks at the passage and the way which is just looking for a process-oriented math problem and the way that a farmer experiencing this would look at the passage. Look, you get a bumper crop. You're really excited. You got born again. You see good things happening in you. And then you are devastated the next time that you see ground that has to be plowed rocks that have to be removed thorns that have to but how how could this be yeah it's because you're not a farmer you don't have to do anything wrong you don't have to try to do anything wrong it'll happen all by itself naturally because your soil is death and it takes help from heaven saints we want to affirm two things to you in this moment one, you are sons of the living God. 
Yeah, thank you, Judah. The second is that there is a harvest, and our God is speaking to us about it. What we're telling you today is that you need to wake up to the reality of the kingdom and not slumber during the harvest. Verse 31 of the same chapter in Matthew says, he told them another parable. Like he's helping us out, making sure we get it, repeating it one more time. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Look, our thoughts on this subject are uh, often quite funny. Don't cut the mustard. As in, we haven't led up to the expectations that we have been called to. Jesus was never teaching that belief in these words as a past event would cut the mustard. Or longing for them in a future point would cut the mustard. These people were farmers and they understood that a mustard seed had to be surrounded in the soil of death for Adonai to bring it to life and for it to grow. They understood for something to grow, it had to be buried in death, like covered in dead soil, left so that it could be resurrected. The agricultural seasons required this to be done cyclically, perpetually, in an ongoing fashion for almost every single crop in Israel so that they could be sustained in life. Consider this one. We're rattling through some common New Testament passages for a reason. Are y'all still with us? Yes. James 1.21. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. And humbly accept the word planted in you, which can, can. save you. The word of God planted in you can save you. It's not a foregone conclusion because it's not a singular event or action. The Bible would have to be greatly misconstrued to be interpreted to say, if a man ever at any time even believed one word from God, then he's saved regardless of what happens in the seasons of his life. <laughs> that whole concept would have been absurd to the entire audience. The truth is closer to something else. The truth would be closer to say, if a man plants the word in the dying soil of his heart, Adonai, God, can cause it to resurrect the man. The same man who experienced that resurrection will have to plow many areas and in many seasons, each time trusting that Adonai, just like he did the first time, would also cause him to experience a resurrection out of the death that he is now encountering. You see, this is a lifestyle. It is a cycle like farming, and it's how the gospel presents it. It is the responsibility of the man to keep cultivating the soil of his heart so that it is in a condition continually to accept every word of God that is being planted in him. This is the cycle of death and resurrection as an ongoing process. This is why the Bible warns us against the hardening of sin's deceitfulness that occurs when we stand in, 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 in disbelief. It can keep you from receiving the very word that you need. Stop thinking of these concepts as a one-time moment at salvation and think of it as every time you're presented with the word of God. Yeah. If you were an agricultural society, you would think of these things as a perpetual or perennial issue 
in every season of your life. Saints, we told you earlier that we know that you understand the concept, that your orthodoxy is good, but that we are after your orthopraxy today. Saints, when you really begin to understand this and you realize death must be faced again and again, it doesn't feel good any time that you recognize it, but when you respond to it, it produces resurrection life. Look, a feeling of uh, inability can come over you. One that is actually intended by God and is a part of the resurrection experience. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6 through 7, Paul is expounding on this concept and helping us understand. I planted the seed. Apollos watered it. But God, but God has been making it grow. Do you hear how this is not the work product of Apollos? It is not the work product of Paul. It is the worked product of God who has been making it grow. If Paul had been in the church I grew up in, this would say, I planted, Apollos watered, and it was immediately grown, done, and completed. He presents it as an ongoing process, has been making it grow. Verse 7 goes on. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. Saints, each of us, we have faced, are facing, and will face crucifying moments that you feel like you are dying in a literal sense. But some of them will be because you sinned. We mentioned that earlier. Others will be because you were righteous and live in a sinful world. But we want to tell you, whichever is the case, our ability to receive the word in those crucifying moments, that is the method by which God will cause resurrection inside of you. You have faced crucifying events. Yes. You are facing them. You will face them, which is why it's so important that we understand and serve a God who was, is, and always will be. Yes. The same power is always available to us. If we don't camp and memorialize an experience in the past or simply sit in paralysis looking forward. The truth of the scripture is that nothing comes to life in any area without death occurring first. Yes. Every agricultural society would understand that. They even compost for it. When the soil of death is penetrated by the seed of the word, then we begin to trust that God will make a dead area come to life come and be fruitful. Are, are you discouraged with the process in a disciple? <laughs> See, I'm, I'm on camera before the whole one association. Sometimes you see amazing life in a pastor followed by really grotesque death. And you have to trust that God will make it grow. Come on. Our discouragement is a statement about believing God will not make it grow. You guys ready to interact with me? Are you doubting whether you can succeed in a venture that God has called you to? Are you doubting whether or not your family can fulfill the purpose that has been made abundantly clear our generations are supposed to accomplish? I know he called us to move in together, mm. but I just don't know if we can do this. 
By move in together, I mean two married couples, not two single people. I know he called us to work in a team, but I just, I don't know whether we can do this. Well, if you are believing that you can do this, are you experiencing doubts about whether or not your wives can do this? <laughs> Have the earthly soils of your heart obscured the truth that God has declared in a portion of your field? See, what is going on in this room? So we have doubts that are waging war against the reality of the kingdom. When you really begin to understand agriculture, you'll read James entirely differently. When he says you dig up seeds sown in faith, in doubt, we act like when we just put something in the ground, we expect it to rise immediately. You wouldn't feel that way if you were at the disposal of the weather, had no idea what was going to happen, but you were depending upon seeds sown in faith to feed your family. See, there's a reason that the Bible explains our walk of faith in this manner. Nothing comes to life unless it dies first. Saints, that goes for your faith in a team process. That goes for your faith in a disciple. That goes for your faith in the call of God. This crucifixion, this resurrection process, it is in the order that it is for a reason. Death always comes before life. There's so many things that we want to get to this morning, but we have, to, we have to get this concept first. We have to really come to grips with it. You have already seen Adonai change your status from death to life. Yep. You've experienced that if you're in Christ at all, probably many times. You've already seen the evidence of his word bringing you to life. Can anybody agree with that? Can you agree with it more strongly since we're talking about the resurrection? That means that you already have a status as an international harvester. The supernatural seed of the word of God has already caused life in your life. But now we need to be honest. We need to be honest and come to grips with what makes Jesus weep in our own life. It's not the death, it's the unbelief. It's the areas that we would like to avoid repeating the process that is necessary in those areas that have not seen progress yet. Death to life. You're pointing backwards to past events or looking forward to a future event to avoid having to deal with your own faithlessness right now. Well, one day we're going to get there. Or in the past, he helped me. What about Right now in the very real present area that only God can cause you to grow in, out of that faithlessness. If you're discouraged with the progress of your parenting. You know that God called you to have children. You know that he's calling you to raise them. But standing in your present situation. You are not full of faith that it is going well. Would you stand to your feet? If you are discouraged with the development of your marriage, you know that he called you together. You know that he's got a calling for you. But you're just surrounded by so much earthly soil, you don't see it happening. Please stand to your feet. If you are experiencing 
life-giving resurrection power and has welled up into you to the place where you're trying to share it with disciples and making disciples in Christ. But you have found yourself discouraged with the path of that disciple. Please stand with us now. If you're discouraged because other people that you love keep telling you, man, something needs to die in your life. There's a problem. You're going to have to figure out how to die to it. And you just can't see what it is. Because earthly soils are keeping you from seeing it. Stand up. If you're fighting to show faith because you're surrounded by earthly soil and you're waiting, but you just cannot see still that God is breaking through with it, we want you to not only stand up with us, we want you to learn to stand up in your status as an international harvester with us right now. Let's work on this status before we pray. Have you ever seen God bring something to life in you at any time in your life? Yes. Then he can do it again. Come on. And the situation that you stand in right now is the precursor for resurrection power. Nothing comes to life unless it dies first. Standing up in your inability is actually standing up in your royal status. And heaven will meet you here. Saints, we're going to revisit a page from Esther 8. But in this moment, I want you to take a second. Over the last 30 days, what faithless thoughts have been at war with the reality of the kingdom in your life? What repeating pattern has been stealing resurrection power from you because it's caused you to shy away from death in this house? I want you to identify it for a moment. I want you to picture it. As we turn on it together, what will you face so that out of that death, Christ can seat you in his resurrection power? Saints, right now we will stand together, identifying our enemy, but wholly identifying our newfound status in Christ as international harvesters. Those who die and are resurrected once again. Those who have seen Adonai bring forth a harvest in the past and know it is coming in our future. Are you ready for a declaration? Yes. Even though I die, come on. Even though I die. Yet will I live. Yet will I live. This is our declaration to our dead circumstances. We are international harvesters and God's fruit will come out of this soil. Yes. We're going to stand in our status. We're going to stand in this declaration. And we're going to call out to God to make it grow. Father, we're asking right here and right now that for these marriages, for these relationships, for these parents, Lord, that as we come to grips with our very dead soil, that your supernatural seed will produce a crop in us again. Lord, we are not embarrassed to come to you again. Because you are a good father. And we will come in every season of our life. Every year of our life. And you will make it grow again. Saints, you may sit in your seat, but do not sit down in your status. Look, 
For weeks, we've been drumming on about our sonship, our status in Christ. We are not ashamed to cry, Abba, Father. We're not ashamed to cry out to our God and ask for him to transform us. Saints, this is how you are and are becoming royal studs in these dying situations. It is producing out of this house an entire stable of stallions. We will see this kind of transformational power magnified and replicated across the earth. We're allowed to look backwards for the purpose of gaining confidence in what he's done in the past. We're allowed to look forward for the purpose of cultivating hope that God will do it again. We are not allowed to look backwards and forward to avoid looking at our present dying circumstances in need for the resurrection. An agricultural society engaged in a cyclical process with many kinds of crops. Earlier when we were talking about planting and stuff, did you think we were just trying to grow one kind of fruit? They did it with many kinds of crops year in and year out because their very lives depended on it. And so does yours. You're an international harvester. That is your status. You should never be discouraged that a cycle is repeating. That is how you get the next harvest, the next crop, the next kind of fruit in your life. (laughs) Saints, when you realize that your God is bringing you back around this mountain again, rejoice because this is what produces a harvest. Our next slide is going to help us close this gap a bit. Agriculture and Israel's pilgrim feast. Major religious festivals marked by key events in the agricultural year. The Old Testament commanded attendance at three great pilgrim festivals, all of which originally possessed agricultural or pastoral significance. Exodus 23, Deuteronomy 16 speak to this. Passover, with its companion feast of unleavened bread, not only commemorated the Exodus, the one-time event from Egypt, but also marked the beginning of the barley and wheat harvest. The Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, celebrated seven weeks after Passover, culminated the cereal harvest time. Later, in the fall, the Feast of Ingathering, or Tabernacles, perhaps the most joyous of all festivals, recalled with thanksgiving the experience of God's care in the wilderness, celebrated at the end of year, End gathering signaled the conclusion of harvest time, and hear this, anticipated the beginning of a new agricultural cycle. Look, concern for grains, fields, vineyards, which is how you make wine, orchards, and flocks, dominated Israelite society from earliest times throughout the Old Testament period. The new opportunities presented by the coming of Greece and Rome greatly diversified Jewish life. The Jews engaged more and more in commerce and in banking, among other specialized occupations. But still, agriculture, especially in Palestine, or Israel more specifically, retained a prominent place, as numerous New Testament allusions to agricultural practices attest. Church, when God designed a society, (laughs) think through this. It was saved and covered under the blood at Passover, which also marked the beginning of the barley and the wheat harvest. It was filled with the word and the spirit at Pentecost, which culminated 
the barley and wheat harvest. Come on. It witnessed to the nations at tabernacles, which signaled the conclusion of harvest time for all of the other crops. And then they anticipated the beginning of another agricultural cycle. The religious process and the agricultural calendar were interwoven so that you would see this process never ends. It keeps repeating. It's not a one and done. It is an ongoing lifestyle. It would become clear, but there is no way to separate the harvest of the crops from the death, atonement, and resurrection cycle of all Israel. When you examine their calendar closely, they continuously go through dry or dying months that are followed by rainfall, or you could say resurrecting months. And they plowed, planted, and cultivated crops all year long. When they experienced harvest, they repeated the cycle of death once again and resurrection again the very next year. Saints, there is so much wisdom to be gained, so much wisdom to be gained in this room from this kind of approach to maturing into Christ who is the head. We're asking you for a little stamina here. Come on. We realize you came to a moment. You stood to your feet and you prayed. Look, you're not a, you're not a one-shot chump here. You were not looking for a vending machine experience with Jesus Christ. We actually want to teach you something that will help you. And it's about the commitment that you've already... Do you really think that prayer that you prayed is the last time you will have to pray that? The statement that you declared the last time you'll have to declare it. It's done. I've arrived. Oh, come on, man. Tomorrow morning, when you wake up and look in the mirror, you'll realize that wasn't true. It doesn't make what you did today a lie. It makes it a process. It makes it one that has to be repeated. Your faith is not just a past event to be memorialized. Come on. And it's not a future event to just be anticipated. You have a living faith that goes through necessary dry times. Necessary dying times. So that you can receive the reign of heaven. And know that God is the one who makes it grow. Nothing comes to life in any area unless death occurs first. In every dying or crucifying moment... It will be followed by resurrection power if you continue to believe. Do you believe, church? Saints, we want you to understand that this kind of cycle, this kind of faith is about more than just you. This kind of cycle is what produces the harvest that belongs to the Lord of the harvest. This is how we raise up international harvesters. This is how we see that vision accomplished. You've been given a new status as international harvesters. If we do not give up and we repeat the cycle, we'll make more of what we are. If you grew something one time, that doesn't make you a farmer. No. But if you grow something enough times, at some point, you have to start to stand up in your status and say, I'm doing this. I'm harvesting. Yes. Life is coming out of the ground and I had a part in it. That is the process of Christianity. And that is the confidence that accompanies understanding your status. I don't want to digress because we have something very good from Deuteronomy 8 that Judah's going to help us in. 
you can agree that you have this status. But for some, now, for all of you, whether it's been weeks, months, years, or decades and decades since you were saved, there are areas of your life that are dead to the status that you actually have. You don't think of yourself as God sees you. Nothing, no amount of fruit is enough to make you happy because you have not yet established that you stand in a status as an international harvester. So if something grows out of the ground, you're, yeah, but it's not what it used to be. If something grows out of the ground, yeah, but it's not what I wanted. Yeah, but I just still don't feel worthy to do this. You need a revelation of who you are in Jesus Christ. Come on. What your status is or this death will stay around you all of the time. All of us are going to go through those seasons and those moments. But we're to go through them, not live in them. A seed that stays smothered in the soil of death forever never produces fruit. But it's necessary that you have these feelings. Necessary that you battle with them. That is where God's resurrecting power will remind you of your status. Yes, raise you up and help you get on top of the soil and bear fruit that causes others to do the same. Are y'all ready for Deuteronomy 8? Deuteronomy 8, we're going to pick up in verse 5 together. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Notice he says, in your heart, not in your mind, not in your acknowledgement, but inside of your soul, know this. Verse 6, observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and revering him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with streams and pools of water, with springs flowing into the valleys and hills. Look, notice in these first few verses, Adonai is a father disciplining and teaching and training his son all at once. He's doing this so that his son can walk confidently in the newfound status as a harvester of the land of Israel. As you engage with this text, you'll find out that everything about it is important. Even the geography of Israel is designed to teach the Son of God, which is Israel in this passage, a lesson. Right off of the back, the Son is walking with God. Yep. He's not camping on an event in the past or hoping for an event in the future. He's in ongoing motion walking with God. The walk is headed towards a good land. The text actually says, God is bringing you. Yes. Not God has transported you, not it has already happened, not it will happen only in the future. It is in the process of happening. God is bringing you. Notice that this land has streams. Guys, that's running water, right? Thank you. You've gotten all your money's worth now. The land has pools. That's stagnant water. The land has springs, which is water coming up out of the earth. Just that description in that variation of a source of water means that God wants you to know that there are three different settings that you will have to trust him in. Sometimes it will flow to you like a stream. Sometimes you'll have to go back to a pool where it's already been collected. And sometimes it'll come right up out of the earth. You'll have to trust him in every one of those scenarios. Then it said that there are valleys, low places, that you will have to trust him in. 
Then it said there are hills, high places that must be ascended that you will have to trust him in. But you will have water from one source or another in each. Saints, our God is teaching a lesson. This is not just a formula or a religious equation. He didn't say A plus B equals C. He's describing an ongoing journey of being brought into the land. Does this sound like a static situation to you? We're going to take a look at verse 8 together. A land with wheat and barley, vines, which is what you make wine from, and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, and honey. Saints, we are not an agricultural society, so it would be easy to miss. But the Lord just named exactly seven species of agricultural products that the land would produce for Israel. These seven appear all over the Bible and in Jewish writings. In Hebrew, they're called Sheva Haminim. Shevat Haminim. Yeah. We have a slide for you. Would y'all like to see it? Yeah. The seven species, seven grains and fruits that grow in Israel and are mentioned in the Bible. Wheat, barley, grapes. <laughs> you can decide which of those you like the best. Vines and wine, figs, pomegranates, olives, and honey from dates. Come on. All of these foods have been plentiful in Israel since ancient times. Guys, when you walk around Israel, you see them everywhere. You step on, on these things on the ground, whether you're in the desert or in the city. We're going to review this list of seven for you on this next slide, and then we want to do some other things. Wheat, barley, grapes, figs, pomegranates, olives, and date honey. These are the seven things that God defined the land and its agricultural produce by that he was bringing the people into. If God defined it and he did it in a group of seven, then it must speak a special message. Saints, I think you can tell we are anxious to tell you more about these seven species. But first, we want to honor the text by finishing the passage and complete a point that began in the very beginning of the sermon. This comes from verse 9. A land where bread will not be scarce, and you will lack nothing. A land where the rocks are iron, and you can dig copper out of the hills. Look, since you're now all on your way to becoming amateur farmers in this house, have any of you ever seen bread growing out of the ground? No, of course not. That's because bread comes from something that has to be plowed. Seeds have to be planted. Adonai has to be trusted for rain. And when the crop has been harvested, well, then the grain has to be ground into flour and then put in heat, baked and made. The process of trusting Adonai would be needed at every stage of this kind of process. And it would have to be repeated perpetually. But notice he said, when you eat of it. By the way, the very same thing is true for iron and copper. It's surrounded by dead soil and it has to be mined and resurrected in the fires of holiness to produce something that is useful. What we're hoping you notice about this is Adonai is talking about giving them amazing things as they trust him yep. and work really hard for it. We don't usually think of a gift as something you really work hard for. In God's economy, it is. If he's giving you a gift, you have to work very hard to cultivate that gift. Do you really think it's different for you in your life? No. 
You guys are called to international harvest. You are international harvesters. This is what we are called to do with the great gifts God is giving us. We cultivate, we plow, we plant, we grind, we, we bake, we do whatever it takes to keep repeating this process in ourselves. Let's move to verse 10 because it becomes amazing. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God. Somebody say hallelujah in this house. Praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Guys, notice that faith, the faith that Adonai displays in his son. It doesn't say if you can do it, if you succeed, if you're able to go through the process and produce that bread. He says, when you have eaten it. He says this before they have actually started. He's calling the end from the beginning, and the gift is the certainty of the outcome. Let's just pause for a second. We do have to keep moving. Randy. Randy is a capable woman. I, I, we yes, all love is. Randy. But Randy, how confident are you right now that if I give you a physical seat of weed, weed, wheat, no weed. Randy does not smoke weed. The last time I even saw weed was in my parents' house, and I was little. <laughs> A single kernel of wheat. How confident would you be that you could come back after some period of time and Randy would have transformed that. Now, don't you lie, Christians. Into a loaf of bread, actual bread. See, this is, this is where there's a problem with us. We think it grows on the shelf at Walmart and we've never participated from beginning to end. And so we treat the cultivation of spiritual things in our life the same way. You pray and it's there. No, it has to be cultivated. Things have to be grinded. There has to be death, heat, life, water, all kinds of things. But God is still expressing the confidence. Just like I am to you, Randy. You will produce the things that Hallelujah. God says. See, he is a father and he is yes. telling them in advance, Come on. when you eat the bread that I've been talking to you about, knowing all they would have to do to get it, but knowing he would hold their hand through the process. When you begin to learn about the character of our Father that causes us to go through this cycle but guarantees you the outcome, this next part of the verse is so important. Praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. <laughs> Saints, he declares from the beginning that you will succeed as an international harvester and then ordains praise from your mouth about it before it's ever happened. Saints, I love our God. We have to ask the question, are you praising him for what he has already produced in your life? See, we have reason to remember those things, to relive them inside of us because they produce hope for the next battles. Saints, the reason that we are asking you, if you're praising for him, what he's already accomplished in you, it's because you're going to go through a process that is building your confidence as you reflect on your last death experience and understand he saved you anyway and there's still more that must be produced for the kingdom of God. He ordained the work that is ahead of you. Yes. He ordained its difficulty. He ordained that it would be successful. And he ordained that you would praise him at every step because you would feel satisfied in this. 
it's important, saints, that we understand these are normal processes. Come on. Why? Why would this be so hard? I thought I was done with this. Because it's the only way he gets glory. No farmer walks outside and he's like, I plowed this field. I grew something in this field. I've seen harvest from this field. How could there be a weed in it? How could there be a predator in it? How could there be something in this good field working against God? No farmer would ever think like that. He would see it and go, this is my field. And I know what to do with that. I'm suggesting that you shouldn't be shocked when the wicked soil of your sinful nature produces crap you don't want. You should say, this is my field. And I know what to do with it. In fact, I'm going to make that fertilizer. Something's going to grow right here. Verse 11 is a uh, prescription of sorts. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving you today. Saints, it's a bit abrupt after talking about the good land, the good land, the good land. Praise him, praise him, praise him. Don't you forget me. (laughs) Why would the Lord complete such a beautiful prophecy? And remember, it's prophecy. They're not there yet. He's saying it's going to happen with such an abrupt warning. It is almost as if he knows that after anything is produced, we may just want to coast on that experience that we've received. Hey, I died and was resurrected then and forget that we have to do it again and again. Jim, tell me you love me. Tell me like you mean it, girl. I love you. Tell me I'm going to be successful. Tell me you love me. Don't you forget me. That would sound insecure if I did it. And it would be insecure if I did it. It's a prophecy when God says it. He's not insecure. He's prophesying your success. He's prophesying the difficulty of the work. He's prophesying that you will praise him. And he is also telling you. Don't you forget me because he knows that we will. Oh, come on. In our first successful harvest, our bumper crop, we already start to forget about all we had to go through to get it, and we would dread having to go through that again. And it is required of us to keep going through it. Oh, saints, I can't help but put this on some practical terms, because this is how God is dealing with us. Every time that I, and we'll leave it on me for a minute, feel like I am being punished because God is bringing a crucifying moment into my life, it is me forgetting the God who prophesied the cycle. And I know I'm the only one who's done such things. Saints, every single time that we don't trust him for the next resurrection event, he tells you to do something. So you, you cause it to die. You bury it in the earth. And then three seconds later, you're digging up and doubt what you believed God already spoke to you. Or more accurately, three months later. Or six months later. Because we forget that God is a God of an agricultural society. You don't get to order it on Amazon Fresh because God told you to. And it shows up in an hour. Seeds sown in faith take decades to cultivate. We forget God when we forget the cycle. There's a cure for all of our complacency. It's to recognize in advance that we won't memorialize a past event. We won't idolize a future event. 
All we are going to do is expect that every day there should be plowing, planting, growing, grinding, Come baking, on. and eating. And then we're going to keep repeating the process because life has to be sustained. Come on. This is the path of a son. It's the path of a son who understands his status. It's a cycle of death and resurrection. Yes, it is. And it's a normal part of our lives. They're not weird or obscure seasons so that James can say, something strange is not happening to you. This is what's happening to everybody. I mean, everybody. An international harvester has to grab hold of their own status as a son. Come on. An international harvester has to believe that God will make it grow once again. An international harvester cannot have myotonic goat syndrome or paralysis if he sees a weed in his life. This is what we do. We plow the soil of death. We bring resurrection life as a harvest for the world to see. See, I'm just so disappointed in myself. Well, maybe you thought too highly of yourself before. You were never able to bring forth life. There was never anything good there. There's only what God caused to grow. Rest in that, and you won't be so disappointed the next time somebody points out or you realize that you suck. You already knew that you sucked. The amazing thing is that you suck less, and God is making you righteous. Hallelujah! Saints, in this process, it is in every one of our nature to wonder If we can once again bend down with the same worn-out tools and trust God to do it once again. Saints, but that's the nature of faith. God has done it again and again with us. Most of the time, we don't blame God in that process. We look at ourselves and say, well, it's not his fault. I'm just not capable, so I'm not going to (laughs) try. You never were capable. If you ever felt like I was closer to the Lord a long time ago, it may be true. But before that, you weren't close to him. You've never been capable. Except that he has made you able. He makes you able to grow. Anything that dies, he makes grow again. Come on. That ought to make you long for and look for areas that you can die in. Look, we're going to skip down to verse 18. We've not managed our time well, and it's okay. We're growing. In verse 18, this is an old treasure, so we won't teach on it. We have something else that we want to get to. But it's from May 23rd of last year in our fifth step of Remembers, if you remember that series. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. Now, the prosperity pimps can make this whatever they want. Those ridiculous fishers of funds that want jets and all of the garbage that that they want. But we learned last year that's not quite what this verse conveys through Hebrew and through Greek translations. It is important, but we just want to show you a slide to remember so that you will be reminded of what is available to you. You guys remember the slide? This is the Alex X out of the same passage. You see, it says the ability. Your father will give you the koak or the strength to produce the dunamos. Spiritual power. Or ability to repeat this whole process and cycle. Saints, hear us for a moment. God has brought us around an elliptical cycle. We are back here sitting in May and our God is speaking to us 
about the koak or the strength to produce dunamos dynamite power inside of you. We have no reason to fear in this house. Faithlessness has no place in our hearts in this house. We are international harvesters. All we have to do is eliminate the shock that the process has to be perpetually repeated. Embrace yeah. it. Recognize it. Love it. This has been true since the beginning of time. Nothing comes to life unless it dies first and your God has destined you for life. The only thing that has not been true is the idea that this was a one-time event in the past or just a one-time event to be hoped for in the future. The process of salvation is a cycle of death and resurrection, just like the agricultural society of the Bible that Jesus taught about. Has that point been abundantly clear today? So there is no defense like, well, but I have died to things. I did die in Christ. Yes, it's an ongoing process. And you're finding new things, and it means that resurrection life is right there with it. That's encouraging. Would you like to look at the seven species of fruit that you're going to produce? Come on. The uh, Shavat Ha-Menim. Here were those seven species again. Wheat, barley, grapes, figs, pomegranates, olives, date honey. We're going to make some observations about the seven species in our final minutes. Uh, and the events that they indicate you can expect in your life. Amen? Amen. You want to know what's ahead? Yes. No. Do you want to know what's ahead? Yes. So our first is wheat. You can see it on the top right-hand side of the screen, Matthew 3.12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Saints, wheat teaches us something. Wheat in and of itself is threshed and torn apart, but it also becomes his when that happens, and it is gathered into his barn and is the primary source of edification for the average Israelite. Christian, you can know that every threshing that tears you apart, it is identifying the chaff to be burned up and the grain that is his in the situation where you will be gathered into the barn and become edifying to God's people at large. Somebody say that's good news. I want to be wheat. I want to be wheat. But wait, there's more. I kind of like barley. Yeah. John 6, 9. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves. We're not off to a great start already. No. He's a boy, and these loaves are small. And two small fish. I feel like you keep saying the guy's short or something. Okay? But how far will they go among so many? Oh, I get it. Small, 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 many. Barley is used to feed animals and is also the bread of the very poor in Israel. New Unger's Bible Dictionary contained this quote. That which is sown on higher levels... Behaves like winter wheat in cold climates, dying down under the snow, oh, come on. and sprouting again in the spring. You can know, Christian, that every time you feel your spiritual poverty and are pressed by the cold climate of your surroundings, 
that you are preparing to sprout again. You will multiply and feed the group Adonai cares most for, the other poor of the land. You guys ready for grapes? Or the fruit of the vine? Or that which you make wine from? Truthfully, you can use all three of these to make wonderful beverages. Yes. Mark 14, verse 24 through 25. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Saints, grapes are planted by the master's commands. They are harvested by the master's hand. They are crushed under the master's will. And the wine is redemption at the master's table. Look, you can see this all throughout the Bible. You can know, Christian, that every crushing experience is showing your connection to Messiah and is aimed at connecting others to him at the table that is eternal and will exist. These dying moments will produce resurrection in us. And the best part is, and in others as they join us in the cup of suffering from his hand. These are fruits of the land that God himself loves with the people that God himself loves. These are the kind of things that produce what God wants out of your life. Let's move on to figs. Come on. John 1, 47. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me, Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Figs in Israel are usually sycamore fig trees. They require circumcision and piercing to produce fruit. Great sermon about that not that long ago by our amazing pastors. They were considered the food of kings and of common men. Come on. You can know, Christian, that every circumcising moment that pierces your outer facade and reveals what the Lord has caused to grow inside is beneficial to your king and common men alike. He wastes nothing in its experience with you. Now I must confess, as much as I loved the figs and the fruit of the vine, pomegranates are one of my favorite things. Love those pomegranates! It just so happens to have been a nickname for the last six or seven years of my lovely wife. Matthew 13, 52, it says, He said to them, Therefore every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. Well, you might be asking in this moment, what does a pomegranate have to do with treasure and teaching? Well, Jewish tradition teaches that the pomegranate is a symbol of righteousness because it is said to have 613 seeds, which corresponds with the 613 misvotes or commandments of the Torah. Look, you can read articles about this in numerous places, but an easy spot is Chabad.org. The treasure inside of the fruit is never visible without breaking it open to expose them. See, when you look at this fruit, <clears throat> yeah, you can't see hardly anything. It just looks like an orange or any other random thing. 
But when it has been broken open, you can see what is contained on the inside. Christian, you can know. Christian, you can know that every difficult moment of exposure that you face in transparency will actually end up revealing the treasures inside of you that have motivated that very transparency. Come on. If I admit to that, they'll always think of me in this way. No, no. my friend. Because you admit to that, they will see something treasure is inside of you and it's causing you to want to be seen as you really are and God will make it grow. Would y'all like to look at the seventh one? Yeah. This is date honey. Come on. <laughs> so, Matthew 3, 4. John's clothes were made of camel's hair. <laughs> y'all thought I was a redneck. And he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locust and wild honey. Honey in the Bible can be from bees. But it can also be from date trees. Erdman's Bible Dictionary points out that all six of the previous things that we have discussed, the previous six products, are the products of plants, not animals. So it's unlikely that we're discussing bee honey here. By the way, all Jewish tradition says that this is date honey. So the honey being spoken of in Deuteronomy 8 is the drippings of well-aged dates that were left in obscurity during a very busy season. Come on. Every product of all of these seven has to go through dry times and wet times, cold times, and times of heat to move into harvest. Yeah. In fact... It's been noted by all of the famous Jewish rabbis that between Passover and Sukkot, all seven of these species produce their first flowers or blooms. Come on. And they teach that a first fruits offering must be from all seven species. The idea being what has initially come to life here we're going to present to the Lord because it's going to happen all over this tree. The Bible teaches us that's what Jesus is. But I wanted to use the date honey to talk to you about another category of fruit in the life of a believer. Christian, you can know that when you move through difficult transitions that are cyclical in the life of a believer and you feel neglected, and left in obscurity, when will I be used? Seems like I was more fruitful at other times. You're being prepared for the sweetness of an eternal harvest. Come on. This passage about John, whether it's wild honey that is from bees or dates, makes no difference. The point is that date honey was drippings from dates that had been left a long time. John... He waited 30 years for six months of public ministry. I know that it's difficult in different seasons of our life. But when you examine the agricultural cycle of Israel and the seven species of plants that are produced, 
It should be pretty clear to you that our crucifying and dying moments are necessary for resurrection harvest to occur. You really can't have one without the other. No. There's a lot that we could say about this, but at an hour and 23 minutes, we've probably said what we needed to say. We want to read to you one last passage, and then we'll close. And friends, y'all can just wait to come up here until we're praying. Let's read John 12. John 12, 23. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Saints, we hear this passage so many times, but the reality doesn't dawn in on us. What hour was that, saints? Carlos is talking to me. It was the hour of his crucifixion and death that he equates to glory. His glory is, would be the work product of this crucifixion and death. Saints, the only way to experience resurrection life is to embrace the dying hour in our day. This is a perpetual process for an international harvester to which we were called. Jesus picks up in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies. That's pretty graphic description of planting, isn't it? It remains alone. But if it dies, somebody say, but if it dies. But if it dies. It bears much fruit. We walk in the footsteps of our master, and this is the process of death to life that allows us to bear fruit. Come on. So let's engage with a couple rhetorical questions. How much fruit do you want? See, that will determine how many dying moments you'll be required to face. Now, on a similar note, how many kinds of fruit do you want? When you hear about the inheritance of Israel and its seven facets, how many kinds of fruit do you want? That question will determine how many kinds of dying moments that you are willing to face in different areas. All seven species required different kinds of dying moments for the harvest. And the land was to produce all. You get really good in one area and you'd like to forget all of the others. Yeah. You would like to look back at what's been done and go, I died in that area and I made a lot of progress in that area. And look forward to one day I'll be perfect and forget the very present reality that there are whole crops that you were missing. Hey, I got some wheat and some barley. <laughs> yeah. Israel is known for seven species of life-giving, life-sustaining fruit. They worked hard to produce them. Come on. Even though they're the free gift of God. They have died cyclically through the ages to produce them. But as a nation, they've also always risen in resurrection power because of their trust in Adonai. Yeah. All of Israel's oppressors are no more. They still stand. And new ones come up every day. But Israel still stands. They are the original international harvesters. And you're a third generation farmer. Maybe married to the farmer's daughter. Right now with us, would you stand up in your status? Would you consider the royal decree from his word that you need to speak over your own life. It's time to embrace the process that yields resurrection harvest. Not in one crop, 
not in two crops, but in all seven. Have you ever wondered how you could have a return 30, 60, and 100 fold? They're farming more than one thing. Come on. Okay? That's how you get there. We're not going to be monolithic and just focus on the one area you're comfortable focusing on. We're international harvesters, and we're going to produce the genuine fruit of Israel for the benefit of the whole world. Saints, after an hour and a half, basically, at this point, there are a multitude of things that you might want to do to respond. What I would suggest is that you reflect on the prophecy that is Deuteronomy 8, that your God is bringing you into a good land, that what he's looking for is faithfulness to spring up so that he can reign upon it. That what 1 Corinthians 3 said, it is God who makes it grow. All should point to a greater trust arising in us. Fixing our eyes and clinging to him who has set us in this status. As we begin to pray and we worship, I'm asking you to praise him in advance of the process, knowing the outcome. That the certainty of what God will produce in you becomes a reality, a conviction that you bring to the rest of the world. Can you pray like men who know the outcome before you have seen it? Pray with me. Father, we thank you for our family here. Lord, this church is not just a group of men and women that wish to learn something or attend, but we desire to be like you in your faithfulness. Lord, we say glorify yourself through our lives. Lord, stir up faithfulness in us that you can shower upon in this moment, mighty King.